Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So recently we had an episode about the Treaty of Waitangi, which was the uh, the document that founded New Zealand as a nation and in a lot of ways, it represented a, a step forward in relationships between uh, particularly the British and indigenous peoples, right? It was not perfect, but in a lot of ways, it was better than things that had gone on before. Um, today's subject actually happened after that and kind of represents the idea that this, this still there were a lot of problems going on between colonizing governments and indigenous peoples. Like, this was not the magical silver bullet at which point everyone started operating from a better perspective no, at in, all. In many cases, that the New Zealand uh, events were really quite singular for their time. Yes. So what we're going to talk about today is about a conflict between the British and the Asante people from what is now Ghana. At the time, it was known as the Gold Coast Africa. And the Asante-British War of 1900 is known to the Asante people as the Ya-Asantwa War of Independence. Um, Ya-Asantwa was a, a woman uh, leader in this, this whole resistance that became really important to it uh, and to the whole history of the Asante people. So the British called this the last Asante uprising or the Asante War, and some people also call it the War of the Golden Stool for reasons that we'll talk about in just a bit. It capped about a hundred years of war and conflict between the British and the Asante. And um, the they had clashed like really officially as wars, not just as skirmishes in 1807, 1824, 1826, 1873 and 74. That was one conflict that spanned two years. And 1896, bringing us finally to this conflict we're going to talk about today, which happened in 1900. So the Asante Empire occupied part of what is now Ghana, and the Asante Union was made up of component states, each of which had its own royalty. The leadership of each component state was matrilineal, with kings and queens having their own unique roles within the state. The Asantehini uh, was, and still is, the supreme monarch over all of them. Europe's interest in the Gold Coast started out being mostly about the slave trade. But as European and American nations abolished slavery, the colonial focus shifted instead to the region's natural resources, including its gold mines. Britain was just one of the European nations that was colonizing parts of Africa at this point, And so it was also looking to protect its interests from the encroachment of other European countries. The British offered the Asante Union the opportunity to become a British protectorate a couple of times in the late 1800s. Uh, both of these times, Asantehini Prempe I, who had become the supreme monarch after a lengthy civil war, turned the offers down. He wasn't opposed to the entire idea of working with the British, though. He arranged a diplomatic mission to go to England in 1895 in the spirit of cooperation and friendship. And the British didn't really negotiate with the delegation, though. Instead, in January of 1896, while the Asante delegation was still in England, the British invaded their kingdom. 
after this invasion, Prippa I, still hoping for a peaceful and productive relationship with the British, did go against his advisor's opinions and agree for the Asante to become a protectorate of Great Britain. And at this point, uh, rather than beginning to work together productively, the British arrested Prempe I and his family and other members of the monarchy, and they sent them into exile. British troops also looted the royal palace and desecrated a mausoleum. Reasons on exactly why the British returned their acceptance of British rule with this sort of almost savage treatment is still unclear. Yeah, I could not figure that out in all of my research for this. Like, the only reason I could possibly fathom would be, like, just to be jerks, which... Success! (laughs) It worked! (laughs) In July of that year, the Asante used money they had raised through a tax to hire lawyers in an attempt to negotiate a peaceful return of their leaders. The colonial office refused, though, and the Asante, who believed that this exile was a temporary measure, decided to just bide their time until the king could come back. So they uh, were really pretty sure that the Asantehini was going to, at some point, be brought back to them, and, and that was inevitable. So they thought, well, we might as well cooperate while we wait for, for our people to be brought back. However, over the next few years, the British did some things that were really just intolerable to the Asante. First, the British dissolved the Asante Union uh, and established treaties individually with each of the component states and had them report to British authorities rather than to a supreme Asante leader. The British also gave missionaries free reign to practice in Asante, which means that they set up schools with the hope of converting their students to Christianity And that naturally meant trying to turn the students away from their tribal beliefs and practices. And the British also instituted a sort of free trade agreement with other kingdoms and tribes who flocked to the capital of Kumasi to trade and look for work. Uh, And this may sound like a fairly innocuous thing, but it really threatened the Asante economic system. On the subject of work, the British also started mandating that the Asante carry out compulsory labor on public works projects, like helping to build roads and buildings. And the British also wanted to abolish slavery. Although the transatlantic slave trade had been declining throughout the 19th century, slavery was still being practiced domestically in many parts of the world, and that included the Asante Empire. The Asante objection to ending the practice of slavery was much like what other parts of the world had seen. Without slavery, there simply wasn't enough labor available in industries like farming and gold mining. So abolition further threatened the economic order. Yeah, we are, we are not at all trying to argue in favor of slavery here, but the, the Asante did not want to abolish slavery at this point. So the fact that the British were forcing them to uh, did not sit well. So by the time the next major part of the story takes place, the Asante were really, really unhappy with the British presence in the Gold Coast. And before we get into why, so to get back to our story, on March 28, 1900, Sir Frederick Hodgson, who was the, who was Britain's governor of the Gold Coast, called for a meeting of all the Asante leaders outside of the British fort in the capital of Kumasi. And at this meeting, he made four pretty big, important announcements. The first announcement was that the exiled Asantahini would not be coming back to Kumasi. Not ever. The second had to do with this whole compulsory labor thing. He was pretty much saying it was not negotiable and the Asante were just going to have to do it. The third uh, was related to an indemnity that the Asante were to pay according to the Treaty of Femina, 
which had ended a previous war with the British in 1874. And Hodgson announced that the Asante were to pay interest on that indemnity, along with paying for the expenses that the British had incurred in their 1896 invasion of the kingdom. And then he produced an itemized list of which tribes were to pay how much money. His last uh, announcement was really the straw that broke the camel's back. He demanded to be brought the golden stool so that he could sit on it. Now, stools had been part of the Asante culture and other cultures in that part of Africa for centuries. They were symbols of a tribe's leadership, and at the tribal level, they were also where the monarch would sit when he was ruling. When the monarch was not there, it would be placed on its side so that no other person or no other soul could find a seat there. And the golden stool was actually a little different. According to the Asante belief, a shaman conjured it from the sky, and it had come to rest on the lap of the first Asantehini. But it wasn't a throne. It embodied the soul and the spirit of the Asante people. The safety and prosperity of the Asante were tied to the safety of this stool, and it's a deeply sacred object, and it is not for random sitting on. So in a move that really could not possibly be more symbolic of most of the worst aspects of Western colonialism, Hodgson basically said, please bring me your most sacred, most important, most cherished object and allow me to put my big white buttocks directly onto it. Yeah, it conjures for me like that image of the bully that kind of grabs the little kid and just sits on him to be mean. Yeah. Uh, Except add to that the layer of like sacred belief and spirituality on it. It was blasphemy. Yeah. Like, it was definitely blasphemy. On its own, this demand already would have been one of the most offensive things that Hodgson could have possibly said, like this bring me your stool. But on top of the inherent offense and that blasphemy, he also asked for the stool in a really arrogant and entitled way. Quote, where is the golden stool? Why am I not sitting on the golden stool at this moment? I am the representative of the paramount power. Why have you relegated me to this chair? Why did you not take the opportunity of my coming to Kumasi to bring the golden stool and give it to me to sit upon? This was completely shocking to the Asante leaders and chiefs who were present. They were completely stunned by this entire business. And the idea that British people would claim the stool and say that they were to sit on it was so appalling and shocking that most of the people just left the meeting without a word. However, almost immediately, they started planning to fight back. And the war that began almost immediately would go on for months. So one of the people who had been present at this meeting was Ya Asantwa. And she had been present on behalf of her grandson, who was one of the kings who had been exiled. She was about 60 at this point. Uh, and she and her family go- uh, governed Ejisu, which was about 19 miles away from the capital of Kumasi. So she was sort of like a queen mother. And she immediately, basically on the way out, started to question and taunt the men about why they were submitting so peacefully to the British when the British were obviously being so horrible and offensive. Queen Asantua and other leaders arranged to have a meeting at the home of a man named Opoku Mensa. In this meeting, they had two orders of business. And first and foremost was to ensure the safety of the golden stool. The British had actually already started trying to find it prior to this whole meeting in front of the fort. And uh, hearing that the British were looking for the stool had already gotten some of the chiefs talking about mounting a resistance. Uh, The stool actually remained hidden away for more than 20 years. 
And the next order of business in this meeting was plotting a war against the British. The War Council selected Ya Asantua to lead their resistance, and she accepted. So it's not completely clear why they chose a woman for this role. This was not really within the norms of gender roles among the Asante at this time. There had been some female diplomats before. Uh, like we said earlier, queens had specific roles that they were responsible for uh, within the governing of their community, uh, but not usually as an, a, a straight-up war leader. It's possible that part of this was just strategic. The British wouldn't expect a woman to be taking charge in that way. And it's also possible that she had a tactical advantage by living in Ijisu. So she was close enough to the capital to be able to do things, but they wouldn't be under as much uh, careful scrutiny as if they stayed in the capital itself to try to mount their resistance. So regardless of what their logic was for choosing her, uh, Ya Asantua basically became a military commander. She was responsible for strategizing, planning, and executing all of it. She was the one making all the calls and finding all the resources behind the scenes. The fighting started in earnest a few days later on April 2nd when British forces were in Bari trying to find the Golden Stool. Asante fighters, who had been tipped off that the British were going to be there, surrounded them and opened fire. And the Asante continued to harry the British for the next several weeks. And the next major battle took place on April 23rd, when the Asante slowly cir- encircled a column of British soldiers before opening fire. This uh, surround the enemy maneuver was an ongoing theme in their resistance. The Asante were armed with an assortment of firearms and knives. Uh, some of these were Dane guns. These were very long-barreled muzzle-loading firearms that had originally been made in Europe and were introduced in Africa by the Dutch. Uh, At this point, though, they were being made locally, and the term Dane gun eventually came to be applied to pretty much any firearm that was locally being made in Western Africa. The Asante's weapons paled in comparison to the British troops' military firearms, so they really had to rely on something other than direct confrontation. So they would cut a path through the bush parallel to the British troops' movement and then come out of the jungle to surround them. They also made really heavy use of scouting, laying ambushes, sniping from trees, and using blockades and stockades to block British movements and, pr- and provide their own defense. These structures that they were building could be huge. They would be made of really enormous jungle logs. They were approximately 10 to 12 feet high sometimes. The Asante would also make smaller blockades that were hidden in the bush parallel to the roads that the British traveled on so that they could take cover from behind them and then shoot the troops as they passed by. On April 28th, the resistance fighters had another meeting at the home of Apaku Mensa. They decided to try to expand the fight for Asante independence by calling in the leaders of the Asante states who hadn't yet taken a side. They did get some support, but it wasn't completely effective. Some of the states had been on opposite sides during the civil war that had uh, started in 1885, after which Prempeh I had become the, the leader. Because the British had established treaties with all of the different component states independently, dissolving the union that had held them together before, some tribes decided to side with the British rather than with the troops that were fighting for independence. The following day, the Asante lay siege to the fort at Kumasi. Missionaries, traders, and others took refuge inside the fort, and they were besieged until July 15th. 
The Asante also cut the telegraph wires and freed the prisoners from the jail inside the capital. So the siege was possibly the most dramatic part of the war, because as is always the case with sieges, conditions inside the fort got just progressively worse and worse and more disgusting and horrifying the longer the siege went on. But the blockades and the stockades were really the most effective part of the Asante strategy. The Asante fighters made very efficient use of them, and they found ways to position them that would provide both cover and a vantage point. British guns could not penetrate them, and it was only at the very end of the fighting that they figured out a combination of weapon, ammo, and firing distance that would actually allow their cannons to break through. The siege of the capital city was lifted in July after British reinforcements arrived from the coast. And the breakthrough in how to get past the Asante stockades followed about a month later. So the tide of the battle really turned against the Asante in the late summer of 1900. They had been able to inflict heavy damages while taking on few casualties of their own. But once the siege was broken, freeing up the British from having to worry about it, and they had the capability to knock down all the stockades and barricades, the British fighting effort became both effective and punitive. The British really shifted at that point from defending themselves to putting down a rebellion. And as the war progressed into September, the British turned to just burning down crops and villages to the ground. At various points, the two sides attempted to negotiate, but the negotiations never really panned out. They always fell through, or someone would break the armistice and the fighting would resume. The last battle in this war took place on September 30th, and in this fight, about 150 of the Asante's fighting force of 600 remaining men were killed. From there, the British just rounded up and arrested the resistance leaders who were still alive. And those who were not executed joined the previously exiled Asante leadership in the Indian Ocean archipelago of the Seychelles. And this included Ya Asantwa. Although the fighting had mostly ended the previous fall, the war wasn't officially over until March of 1901. Asante became a British colony that September and a crown colony that fell under the Gold Coast colonies in 1902. Ya Asantua died in exile in 1921 when she was about 90. In 1924, Prempe I and others of Ya Asantua's kin were repatriated, and they later negotiated the exhumation and return of the bodies of people who had died in exile so they could be returned home and buried there. He also secured the Golden Stool. With Prempe I's repatriation, the Asante Confederation of States was reestablished. The British officially recognized this confederacy in 1935. And the Asante continued to be one of Ghana's ethnic groups, with the Asantehini's lineage continuing uh, until today. Although Ghana itself is a republic and not a monarchy. And also, um, uh, maybe coincidentally, maybe not, Uh, Ghana was the first African nation to declare itself independent from British colonialism. More recently, Ya Asantua has appeared on Ghana's postage stamps and also as a watermark on currency. She was really unique in Asante history. Sometimes, as we said, there could be a woman who was occupying a stool that was normally held by a man. And when this happened, that woman might have a more military presence in the duties that she was responsible for. But yeah, Asantua was really an outlier. 
uh, a woman's role in war in this culture was normally about being supportive and uh, like supporting the men, inspiring the men to fight, plus ceremonial war songs and dances. On the other hand, Ya Asantua really led the entire war. Um, so she became the first female war leader of the Asante. And it's important to note that while the Asante did not win this war, uh, it was an entire movement of resistance that sparked a lot of pride in in the culture. Um, so it was sort of a moral victory, even though it was not a literal victory. And Queen Asantua, you know, as part of her leadership, really roused the men and inspired them with passionate speeches, both before and during the war. She was essentially the commander in chief of the Asante army. She took an active part in negotiations with the British throughout the whole event. In 2000, Ghana observed the centennial of the war and in part to try to bring in tourist trade to help the economy they opened a Ya Asantua Museum that year um, in Edwizo. Although I found one article that said that it had later burned down. I had trouble uh, confirming that before we got into the studio. Do you have some listener mail to cap off this story? I do. And uh, our listener mail is actually somewhat related because it ties back into the um, the Treaty of Waitangi episode that we started talking about at the beginning of this podcast, which I didn't realize until... We were really sitting down in the studio that, that wait, this thing that we talked about today happened after that. Yeah. <laughs> Which, like, that raises a, a number of implications. Um, so I actually have a couple of pieces of mail. One uh, is from Ryan, and Ryan forwarded on a note, um, actually from the Waitangi Tribunal. I had posed the question at the end of the episode of how many claims there are uh, before the Waitangi Tribunal, because I hadn't been able to find that out before coming into the, the studio. So Ryan did what any awesome person should do, which is that he asked a librarian, specifically asked the librarian at the Waitangi Tribunal, who said that as of that day's date, which was June 9th, there are 2,424 registered claims on record. So that's 2,424 claims uh, of a, a law or an act that has gone against the spirit of the tribunal. Um, that does not include the ones that are unregistered or the ones where the registration was declined. So that is the number. Uh, thank you, Ryan, for asking a librarian. And thank you, librarians, for being awesome. Librarians have the power. They do. Um the other note that I got is from Sue, and Sue says, thank you very much for another brilliant podcast. I thought I would give you a little insight into how the treaty continues to be a living document and guide the lives of New Zealanders today. As a preschool teacher, I am regarded as an agent of the crown and therefore obligated and proud to uphold the principles of the treaty, participation, protection, and partnership of the Maori in their education. The New Zealand education system has not always been geared toward the best interests of the Maori. Early colonial schools separated Maori from European and also restricted the curriculum for Maori so they were only taught the skills needed for laboring jobs. In later years, Te Reo Maori, which is the Maori language, was forbidden from being spoken at schools, forcing Maori youngsters to assimilate into the European culture. It was, it was feared Te Reo Maori would disappear. 
Uh, and I apologize. I tried so hard to be able to say this, and there's like a roll in the R that I cannot re- replicate with my American English tongue. So uh, to get back to the letter, it was feared Terriel Maori would disappear, which led to the efforts to revive the language. The treaty tibu- tribunal heard a claim to make Terriel Maori a treasure, which they found in favor of, and Terriel was made an official language in 1987. In 1996, the education system took another significant step forward with the release of uh, Tefarike, the first bicultural early childhood curriculum in the world. The document is written in both Tereo and English and incorporates the Maori worldview into the education of all our young. This is the curriculum that guides my teaching practices today. Although not yet fluent in Tereo, I use it daily with the children at my preschool and respect the values of the Maori worldview. Furthermore, the Ministry of Education funds many full Maori immersion uh, education centers, bilingual and immersion Maori units in primary schools and college. You are now even able to take university exams and submit assignments in the real Maori. Uh, hopefully our positive steps forward can help ease some of the not-so-wise decisions of the past. Um and then she says, just for a little fun quirk to end with, Maori and New Zealand Sign Language are the only official languages of New Zealand. English has never been given official status, but is the de facto official language of the country by virtue of the fact that it is used in government departments and sessions and that a very large majority of the population speaks it and nothing else. This always appears in pub quizzes here. Thanks again, Stu. <laughs> Yes, thank you very much, Sue. Uh, I was very glad to get this letter because we mentioned in that episode that, like, while the spirit of the treaty overall seems to be coming from a good place, definitely a lot of things that happened after the treaty was signed were not from a good place. Um, but I didn't want to go into a litany of examples about why, because yeah. that w- would have, I think, distracted from the, the core part of the podcast. So I was glad to get uh, this note. I also got a series of contradictory corrections on how to pronounce Waitangi. We're so doing our hardest, hardest best with pronouncing words. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about it so many times. You know, the horse horse should be deceased at this point. But um, again, we grew up speaking English. Our, uh, Our tongues can't always cluck the same ways as other languages. No, and I, I, I sort of, like, I, I want everyone who listens to the podcast to remember how hard it was the first time they tried to learn a, another language other than their native language for the first time. Unless they were extremely small children, it was probably pretty difficult. So now imagine trying to do that for every language on Earth. <laughs> Once a week. Once a week. <laughs> uh, we're so, we're seriously, seriously trying our best. So... Uh, so thank you to, to those of you who, um, who send us helpful things and, and not mean things on that score. Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other subject, we're at history podcast at howstuffworks.com. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash missed in history and our Twitter is missed in history. Our Tumblr is missed in history.tumblr.com and we're on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash missed in history. 
Uh, if you would like to learn a little bit more about one of the reasons why the British even cared about what was going on in Ghana at this point in history, come to our website and put the word gold in the search bar. You will find how gold works because that was super important at this point. Uh, you can learn about that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. And you can find show notes and an archive of every episode and lots of other cool stuff at our other website, which is MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 